Hey Houston, for a limited time at VisionWorks, you can get two complete pairs of glasses, frames, lenses, the works for just $49 on single vision glasses and $89 on progressives. And that's a good deal, but we offer that pricing on over 500 frames, which makes it a great deal. Right now, buy two complete pairs of single vision glasses for just $49 or two pairs of progressives for only $89. VisionWorks, we're here to help you. Some restrictions apply. See store for details. Offer expires November 10th. Blog Talk Radio. Who are the unstoppable ones? Is it just that they can do it and I can't? Who are the unstoppable ones? Is it just that they can do it and I can't? Mission Unstoppable. Mission Unstoppable. The unstoppable ones. You did say unstoppable, right? You did say unstoppable, right? What is it they know that I don't? Coach Frankie Picasso takes you on Mission Unstoppable. Can anyone stop these people? Good evening. I am the Unstoppable Frankie Picasso, and you are about to go on another Mission Unstoppable. And tonight is no different from any other night uh, on Mission Unstoppable. We have another Unstoppable guest, and we're about to go undercover to learn what poker cards and chips can teach us about leadership. My guest this evening is an author, a law enforcement professional, a justice technology expert, and an expert in the art of leadership. He's a multi-published author, a lieutenant, a man skilled at developing a sense of teamwork, establishing performance standards, and providing guidance and mentorship. Tonight we're going to discuss what it means to be a leader. What are the earmarks of a great one, and what can we learn from Texas Hold'em about leadership? Stay tuned, stay close, and all will be revealed in just a moment. Today is Tuesday, August the 25th. The time is 8 p.m. in Toronto, 7 in Chicago, and 5 p.m. in Los Angeles. If you're listening to us live on August the 25th, then feel free to give us a call at 646-595-3741 and join in on the show. We'd love to hear from you. Chat room is open, and uh, you can see us in there. Raymond and I are both in there. My guest this evening is Raymond Foster. He's the author of Police Technology and the co-author of the book Leadership Texas Hold'em Style, along with Captain Andrew Harvey. He is a career policeman, a justice professional, having served 24 years on the LAPD, and he retired as a lieutenant. He's a graduate of the West Point Leadership Program, and today he's an accomplished writer, instructor, and leader who also happens to be the managing editor at American Heroes Press, a publishing company that assists police officers, firefighters, emergency services personnel, and military members in publishing their stories uh, of professional quality books. He's also the owner of High Tech Criminal Justice Online, a site that's dedicated to improving law enforcement, policing, and criminal justice through online education, training, and resources. And he's also a professor of Criminal Justice Department Chair at Union Institute, excuse me, at Union Institute and University. And he holds a BA in Criminal Justice Management, an MA in Public Financial Management, and he has completed his coursework now for his doctorate in Business Research. Please welcome Lieutenant Raymond Foster to Mission Unstoppable Radio. Good evening, Raymond. Thank you, Frankie. What a great introduction. Wow, listen to you. <laughs> Are you something? I always wait for somebody else to come on the line. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so funny. Listen, I wanted to, to, to congratulate you on this book, uh, Leadership, Texas Hold'em Style. It is a brilliant book, and you and Andrew have just outdone yourselves. It's not your typical dry business workbook. 
It's interesting blend of education, both academic and on the job. Your message is believable. It was easy to read and understand. The concepts weren't difficult, and the examples were real life and plausible. And that's something that you know I always look forward to, um, knowing that somebody's done this before. You know, it's not just a highbrow idea theology somewhere. So you couldn't. Um, you know, it, it's a really it's way different, I think, from other books on management. It's real life proven leadership strategies by two guys who have been there. You have the companion website at www.pokerleadership.com, which is a really great addendum to your book. So I think, um, wow, all, you know, all in all, it's just fantastic. Congratulations. Well, thank you very much. And really, when we set out to do this project, we identified what we considered to be about a half a dozen pitfalls or problematic areas. And you touched on one of them immediately was, how do we get this, we, we, how do we reach a balance between something that is academically sound and then is extraordinarily readable at the same time? And so we were really trying to mix those two ideas. This is very theoretically, very academically sound, but at the same time, it's very readable, very doable, and very practical to be able to translate today into whatever your workplace is or your organization. So thank you for the compliment. Well, you're welcome. And, and you know, one of the um, earmarks of a leader is, is to be able to vision. And you guys really vision this book out. You, you correlate it to, to poker. You've got 52 chapters to 52 cards in a deck. You know, you really thought this out really well. That's great. It, that was again. You, you know, that was one of the things that we looked at when we were doing it. We were having the conversation about developing the book, and um, we said, "Well, 52 cards." The metaphor itself gave us a structure to do these uh, chapters and coordinate and kind of um, mix everything the way we wanted it. So it, it really was just the structure turned out really well for us. We were pleased too. Yeah, and short chapters because people really like to read short chapters. They say you know you should be able to read a chapter in the bathroom. <laughs> you know, that's one of the earmarks of a good book. Uh, and, and I think, you've, you know, you've captured that. For people who don't like to read or don't have time to read, they can, you know, just read a chapter really quickly, um, get the gist of it, and, and practice that even, and, and wait, you know, till the next day or the next week, whatever, to move on. So that, that was really well, well done, too. Yeah, that was the design, was to create 52 short chapters, uh, you know, because when you're looking at the structure of a book, if you had 52, like, regular length chapters, textbook chapters tend to be about 20,000 words, having written a couple of textbooks. We decided that we would go magazine length article on each of those, and so the target was about 1,800. Uh, a few of the chapters, like the one on communications, there was just so much, it's a little longer than most. But then what we did was, well, there was so much we wanted to tell you, and you, you mentioned vision in the beginning, which is indeed the second chapter, because it's a critical aspect of leadership. Part of the website is that it's not just a marketing tool. It is, of course, that, but it has what we call chapter supplementals in it. So you as the uh, reader are referred to occasionally in the, in the book to the website to say, hey, we gave you a lot here, but there was more we want you to know, and it's available for you at this location. Yeah, that was really well. That's great. I think that that is really great. You got lots of great articles on there. It's a good blog. Lots of things happening on the website, keeping it fresh. Um, so that that's that was that was you know perfect. So let me ask you. I mean, you've been in law enforcement for over 24 years, 26 years, 28 years. I'm not even sure how many years you've done it. You probably think you live and breathe it. But how does a guy, you know, I mean, when I think of a law enforcement professional, like you think of somebody who who is a you know ready hands on rough-and-tumble kind of a guy. How do you get engaged um, in looking at being a good leader, looking at, at all this academia that, you, that you've gone through? 
Well, uh, there's actually probably two questions there, and let me let me yeah, handle one first, <laughs> uh, or at least I heard two. Um, you know, I would tell people um, I started teaching because I had written my first book, which was a textbook, I and mean, then that was a whole accident. But it's out in colleges and universities, so I decided I'd get some experience teaching. So I went to university, and then I got accepted to teach a couple of classes. Turned out I liked it, but I tell people that. You know, going between going in front of a group of 30, 35 undergraduates was no big deal. Going into a seminar where I'm teaching 20, maybe graduate students was no big deal because I had faced down a roll call of 60 or 70 motor cops at one time. So when you talk, <laughs> you talk about teaching experience, and I used to call that the Easter Island audience where everyone sat yeah. stone-faced and, you know, you got zero feedback as a speaker. I think that was as, a, as an educator was a wonderful it was a, an interesting and perhaps wonderful training ground. Now, the other aspect of that is Andrew and I both, he's a retired police captain, I'm a retired police lieutenant, and we were, again, another pitfall we identified very early on when we were designing this project is if we relied on our law enforcement experiences only, we would have a book that would not be as readily readable, I think, by the general public. So what we decided to do was to draw on our own personal accounts of leadership in our families, in community mm -hmm. groups, in academia, as small business owners. And we really leaned heavily on those other types of experiences that we had so that what didn't happen was, it, you know, it didn't come out with, what do you do if you got 64 motor cops and they're unhappy? Um, right. it, yeah. So we, we really identified that as a pitfall, and we, and we uh, drew on other experiences because, quite frankly, our position is throughout life, every day, we switch positions between leader and follower, all of us. At one moment, you're a leader. The next moment, you're the follower. Uh, and your followership and leadership can be improved through study. So that's we, – we set out to do that. Yeah. And I don't think you can be a good leader unless you are a good follower. Well, I would agree with you. I think that, um, yes, I think followership is critically important, and um, I was discussing that with somebody today, you know, who needs leadership training? And, you know, I, the first moment you hire somebody is when you start the leadership training because leadership training does make you a better follower. It gives you insights into what's going on, and so I think it is, uh, I, I would agree with you 100%. Well, you know, I think a lot of people are probably confused about the difference between management and leadership, and, and you know, we're not using those words interchangeably. So let's, let's give our, you know, your definition of what is management and what is leadership. Well, we um, spent the first chapter of the book, you know, as a writer, it's necessary uh, when you're writing something technical to really define it up front. So we had to define leadership, and that was going to be the framework for the entire book, and that was really the first task. We spent a lot of time talking between ourselves, and we borrowed substantially from the Platoon Leader 100 course at West Point, and we developed our, our definition of leadership from there. And our definition in the book is the art of influencing human behavior toward organizational goals. And uh -huh. the big part of that in the center is human beings, and that's the difference between leadership and the management. Anytime you are act interacting with human beings, there is an element of leadership. Anytime you are working with things, you're working with a budget, you're working with uh, paper, you're working with something else, you, that's probably management. Um, mm -hmm. So leadership involves people to begin with. Okay. And I like, I, somewhere in the book it was, it was stated that management is the development of good work, leadership is the development of good people, and I really like that distinction a lot. 
I think that that works really well for me. Yeah, when you talk yeah. about management, you're gonna you'll find like task design and and yeah. um, and organizational design and those types of things are management to make the leadership run smoothly. But anytime you're working with people, you're 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 doing leadership. Yeah. So who whose idea was the poker analogy? Well, we were sitting. Uh, as it turns out, at university, I was hired about four months before Andrew. And, uh, of course, seniority being a big deal in the university, as it is in most organizations, I was assigned as his faculty mentor. Uh, so the blind leading the blind were having coffee, and we were just chatting, and we were talking about our experiences in law enforcement. And I said to Andrew, I said, you know, to me, uh, leadership in civil service is like five-card stud. They give you five employees, and you don't get to throw them back. You don't get new ones. You can't ask for any more. You've got to do the best you can with the five they give you. Mm-hmm. And Andrew looked to me and he goes, is there a book in there somewhere? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I don't know. What he, uh, he had written a book on leadership previously. So we began to just have dinner together and explore the concepts, write a couple of test chapters, uh, and do some other things that we, you know, my style of writing that we would do to organize this thing. And indeed, that's the, really the conversation that got the, whole, the ball rolling was his question, is there a book in there? And we went forward. Yeah. Wow. I really like that a lot. And, you know, it, it's kind of interesting because as I read it as a coach, um, you know, the, the, that same analogy, you're dealt the life that you're given. What you do with that life is up to you. The choices are yours. And it's, it works the same way. And even if, you, you know, your background's horrible or whatever, you can still beat those odds. You can still, you know, rise above that by, by the choices that you make. And, and the people that you align yourself with, all, all of the good things that are in this book work for life as well as just leadership, organizational leadership, everything. So it, it's not just, you know, a work book. It's a life book. And I also think that's a testament to the power of using a metaphor. Um, And uh, when you find a metaphor, and this, by the way, this was another, again, it was a pitfall we identified uh, in two ways. Number one was the title itself evokes strong emotions. I've had people immediately get it and understand because they perhaps they play cards. And you've read the book. You don't need to play cards to get it. Um, No, no. Other people have... Uh, have an immediate strong reaction. They see Texas Hold'em, they think gambling, and they're just completely opposed to it. So it evokes this strong emotion from people. Um, and the other pitfall we, had, we, we identified was, you know, it's a, it's a great metaphor, but sometimes there were concepts we wanted to communicate to people, and we just couldn't come up with a card-playing, poker-related metaphor at all. And so we tell you right in the beginning of the book and a few places throughout, you know, we just weren't smart enough to relate this to card playing, but, you know, damn it, we want you to have the information, so here it is. Um, so we, we didn't abuse the metaphor is what I'm saying. Yeah. No, I, I think it works really well. Like I said, I think it's a really, really great book, and, and it is a, a book for life. So as we look at what a leader is, and, 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 and we, we talked about that a leader, you know, works with people, and managers work with work-related items. Um, how, how do we go forward? Like what, you know, for you talk a lot about communication in the next, you know, in, in one of the chapters, probably one of the bigger chapters. And, and when I worked in an organization, I found that um, leaders, you know, they, they, they know the communication. And then somewhere around the, the director level, things start to fall apart. And below there, the information at the top doesn't usually drill down to the bottom. So how how can a, a leader take better advantage of communication? 
Well, the high, you're quite you're you're quite quite correct. If you look at organizations as a pyramid, which is the typical you know hierarchy that we have, it turns out that as the the further you get up in the organization, the less discretion you actually have, and the more difficult it is for you to get things done. Um, you pull in your Indians and tell them what's going to happen, and they call in their Indians, and you have the team of game of telephone going on. And, of course, messages get diluted, they get changed, they get interpreted. Um, so the, what we recommend, and we talk about multiple cas and cascading mediums of communication to get your message out so that it's not just going through people, but you find other ways to communicate directly all the way down the chain of command without, un without undermining, of course, subordinate leaders. But um, you're absolutely right. That's one of the issues that, that people really high up in an organization often face is how do I get the person at the call uh, who's handling the telephone call to do the right thing? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's kind of interesting because... When you talk about vision and mission in, in an organization, policing is one where I think everybody knows, you know, what your vision is. It's on your police car, serve and protect, you know. So, but in a lot of organizations, the people, if, if you went beyond, you know, senior management committee, let's say, they really probably wouldn't be able to tell you what the mission and the vision of the organization is. You know, they, come, they know that they come to work, and sometimes they like it, and sometimes they don't. But one of the, the, the areas that I was always interested in was, was getting everybody in the organization to know, you know, what the mission and vision is so they can be in alignment with it. Maybe, maybe you know, um, it would help with how they felt about coming to work, you know, the business that they're doing other than the actual job that they're doing. Well, there's no, there's no question that I believe that you're right. Um, we spend a lot of time talking about visioning. Um, and here's what it is to us. Um, the, the purpose of creating a vision is a mental picture of an end state. It's what you want it to look like when you're done. Once you have that mental picture, you're able to turn it around in your mind. You're able to look at it inside out. You're able to more readily see the steps to get there. You're more readily able to see pitfalls. And, you know, the other thing that's about that, once you've got that picture in your mind, what it's going to look like, you can then pass that picture on to other people. And if you can get it into their head, now you have their mind and their creativity having the ability to turn that vision around, to turn it inside out, to look for pitfalls and to look for the steps to get there. So the power of the vision isn't writing it down. The power of the vision is actually creating it concretely in your mind and then passing it on to everyone else so that they can use it to improve your entire organization. So it's really an important mental model that is, I think, significantly underutilized in, in most organizations. But let's, let's look at policing and let's look at the, the medical field for a second. Because we know people go in the medical field because they want to, you know, help people. And people go into policing because they want to save people. And, and they could be interchangeable. Now, you know, the reality is, though, that, that when you're faced with a day-to-day -day job, please, you know, come in contact with the scum of communities and, and, and the people in, in medical communities come in, in too many crises and, and they become immune to it or inured to it. So... How how do you think that that leaders can can keep that um, the original intention why you joined you know clear for them how can you you re, re um, furbish it or, or you know reignite that passion for why you really did it in the first place Well I, you know I think it's actually pretty simple um, and I'll tell you what I would do and what I have done many many times and that's uh, storytelling. 
that is um, simply storytelling and getting other people to tell their stories of why they joined up so that they are reminding themselves of why they got involved in whatever they got involved in. And then you mentioned on the side of the police card it says to serve and protect or to protect and to serve depending on where you are um, or some other motto. But, you know, organizations like police agencies, are they do massive amounts of cultural incul inculcation, the use of symbols, the use of slogans, the use of all these things to reinforce the vision all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and so even in any organization where you, you constantly, through symbology or through conversation, are reinforcing the vision, that brings people back to understanding why they joined up. And that's really a critical leader role is to continually remind people and put them back on the tracks if they happen to derail. Do you, in policing, I'm curious, do you, do you think of um, the community as your, as your customers or clients? How, how do you talk about them in-house? Um, well, <laughs> it depends. <Yeah. laughs> it depends. With you know, everybody you meet in the policing, you, you know, I tell people, get a job where everybody you meet is is pissed off, uh, or they are are they in crisis. It doesn't matter. Everybody you stop doesn't want to be stopped, or everybody whose house you got called to, something bad has just happened. So you're always seeing people pretty much under crisis and under stress, and so yeah. that's one. One of the things you've got to constantly remind yourself is they probably normally wouldn't be this way, uh, yeah. or they probably would act a little bit better or a little bit differently. So that's something that you know you have to remind yourself constantly. Now the truth is that uh, we hire police officers to run towards gunfire. We hire police officers to um, to uh, you know go to do dangerous things to confront uh -huh. people in the middle of the night who they don't know who they are. Uh, you can imagine, it's 3 o'clock in the morning, you see four people in a car, um, they're speeding through town, and you're working by yourself. It's your job to pull those four people over and talk to them. That's a very mm -hmm. dangerous thing to do. So yeah. what happens in... What happens in policing is um, we tend to rely on ourselves, and it tends to get more and more culturally insulated. And especially now in Canada, it's a little bit different. You have national policing, you have some provincial policing. But here mm -hmm. in the United States, there are, over, there are almost 18,000 small police agencies, each with okay. their own history, each with their own culture, each with their mm -hmm. own symbols and things. And so it becomes very insulated, and that is very a problem clear. with... Yes, it does. Well, we very much rely on each other because if we need help, who are we going to call? It's going to be the other yeah. police officers. So yeah. that is a problem, but it's like the nature of policing. Yeah. And, so and I, and you're I, hiring, you know, part, part, part of being a leader is being a risk taker. So you've got a little inkling of that or a lot of that in, in, in the people that you're hiring. But do you have the emotional intelligence? Do you have, you know, the, the communication, the you know, the dependability, those other, those other um, ingredients, let's say, for leaders. You mean in policing? Yeah. Well, you know, they, they, they go out and they screen with the MMPI and the uh, personality tests, and they're looking for people who um, uh, will intervene, and they're looking for people who will demonstrate what we call command presence. They're looking for people who are assertive. So then we hire, we screen them down, we screen them to be physically fit, then we put them through six months of confidence school, and, and then you put them on the street with a senior person. I mean, we're really training them to take charge constantly. That's the, that's the job. A police officer's job is to make order out of chaos. Uh, right. And, you know, 
you only have to roll up on your first homicide scene with bodies everywhere and witnesses screaming and, uh, you know, whatever is going on there to know it's your job to make order out of chaos. And so they're constantly trained to take charge. That's not quite the same as the kind of leadership that you need now to, to, to lead those people. That's a whole different animal. Mm-hmm. Well, taking charge of a situation is, is part leadership. What about the power aspect of it, though? How, how, do, you, how do you control the power? You know, because they have a lot of power um, in, in police officers. Young police officers feel this, this you know, power, I think. That, um, how, so how do you control that and yet support that because you need that as a leader? Well, yeah, here's a, when you're a police leader, um, uh-huh. here's something that, that you realize. Uh, policing is a learn-by-doing job. Uh, there's no one who can teach you. They can send you to the academy for six months. They can send you there for six years. Uh, they cannot teach you to do the job. It is a learn-by-doing. It's very much an apprenticeship. And all of the research tells us it takes about seven years to learn to do the job. And during that seven years, there's all kinds of, there's a cynicism curve that goes right along with that where it turns out, for that first seven years, cops get increasingly cynical. It levels off and then significantly decreases as they become more comfortable with their job. So with young, so with young police officers, what you, you know, you just, knowing it's a learn-by-doing job, you know that they're going to go out and they're going to try to do the job. They're going to try to do the best they can, but it's learn-by-doing. And it's learn-by-doing mm-hmm. under crisis. They're going to make mistakes. Some of those mistakes, you're going to have to really unwind a big ball of yarn just to figure out what happened. Uh, so a good line supervisor, um, you know, you got to understand that they're, they're, they're just exploring these concepts. They're just learning the use of these concepts themselves, and, and, you, and that takes a lot of understanding. Now, mm-hmm. the, word, the word power, um, I think what you mean is authority. Because uh, we go over the we go over the leader power in the book, and there are diff- different kinds of power, and we don't happen to think sure. that's a bad word. In fact, we no. think power is actually a good word. It's the misuse of power or the misuse right. of authority that rankles everyone. And I think the best thing that you teach a police officer or that a cop learns is uh, what a cop learns is uh, I walked a footbeat downtown Los Angeles, and uh, about I had about six or seven years on. I'd always wanted to walk a footbeat. It was just yeah. before I made sergeant. And here I am on a footbeat, and it's like there must be hundreds and hundreds of people walking around me all the time. Uh, and it was in the bad part of downtown or what was really bad at that time. Now it's a pretty nice neighborhood, actually. Um, and you know how we maintained control? We maintained tr- control by having the shiniest shoes, the most pressed uniform, the most look together, the, the look in your eye that you really knew what was going on. So the control of your own safety starts with your appearance, and your bearing, and then how you deal with people. And what cops have to learn, and you have to learn it the hard way, quite frankly, is if I stop you, Frankie, and I go, may I see your driver's license and registration, and you start calling me all kinds of names, well, you've just identified yourself. If I come up, on the other hand, to your car, and I start calling you all kinds of names, then Mm -hmm. I haven't given you the chance to give me clues to whether you're going to be safe or unsafe. So police officers have to re- learn to respond with, you know, take charge, respond with the proper amount of authority, the proper amount of really force, and and then see what happens so that that's a safety aspect of it. Right, right. So if we transfer that, let's say, to the organization, um, the the idea of power, 
the idea of why. I mean, what you talked about. Actually, what you just like, there's two things that just occurred to me because when you talked about your presence, walking with a presence in in that bad neighborhood. I mean, we talk about um, in coaching. We we talk to people, women who who feel unsafe about walking with presence too, about walking not as a victim but as somebody with some power, um, because I think it's a deterrent. Is it a deterrent in your in in your experience? Well, I tell you, um, and we, Andrew and I, we talk about indirect leader actions, um, and uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, tonight at about 11.30, I'm going to go to the gym. And at 11.30, most of the real muscle heads, some of them are still there, lots of young people there. I'm 50 years old, and you know what I practice doing? I practice walking upright because as you get older, you tend to hunch a little bit. And because I know, yeah, I know that by walking upright and by having my head held right, I'm not challenging anyone. I'm just looking like I know where I'm going and I know what I'm doing. And people, when they, if you look like you know what you're doing, people presume you do. Uh, It's you learn that I think in police. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Salesmen know this. Cops know this. Good leaders know this. If you act. That people go, well, yeah, they must know, uh, and then I'm going to do what they say, or I'm going to follow them. Leadership is part acting in that you have to, and I'm not telling you, you can't act, you can't act concerned. For too long, Yeah, yeah. No, but what you can do is realize that your indirect actions, how you walk, how you speak, and I give an example, I'm hard of hearing on one side. And uh, when I first went to a new division, it just so happens that I had just made lieutenant. Two or three people came up to me, I guess, on that side and said something. I didn't hear them. And mm-hmm. a reputation started by the end of the first day that I was alone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I didn't hear them. Um, yeah. And so, uh, you know, one of the things, I actually went to all the roll calls, and I go, you know, this started. I don't know how this started. Uh, I don't think I'm aloof, and maybe I am, and I just don't know. But i got to tell you, if you come up on my right side and you're slightly behind me you say something, I probably won't hear you. Um, uh-huh. So, you know, I apologize. Uh, and it, you know, it really dawned on me, and Andrew and I actually experimented around with this while we were writing the book on how we could influence people with indirect actions. And we, I tell the story that we would come into university, and there are two doors to come in, and we kind of go over this in the book a little bit. That's uh, right, one yeah, one goes right past the secretary and some other people who work up front. We'd always go in that door and say hello to everyone on our way to our offices. Well, I said, let's try something different. Let's come in the back door just go straight to our office. Well, the mm-hmm. very first time we did that, the secretary came down to the office and goes, what's wrong? Mm-hmm. All we you did was choose an, we just choose another door. Uh, we yeah. just chose another door. We didn't, we didn't do anything really. Except, so people are very sensitive to leader actions. Yeah. Uh, and they're sensitive and to things. absolutely. So I think you're right. Uh, you've got to be cognizant of your bearing, cognizant of your appearance, cognizant of the words that you use. Yeah, yeah, I think so. What, how, okay, let's let's talk about. Um, you have a chapter that you talk about that the job should be fun. So how can a leader make a job fun for his employees? How did you make it fun? Well, you know, I would do um, all kinds of different things that I thought made it fun, uh, and I think other people did too. Uh, as an example, in my last assignment, I had 75 detectives working for me. And on Friday afternoon, I, I had a big candy jar on my desk, and on Friday afternoon, I would walk to whoever was left in the shop. I would walk around desk to desk 
you just hand out a piece of candy and then chat with them for a few minutes to see what was going on. Um, not necessarily a fun thing, but a real icebreaker. And people yeah. would come in the office and they'd grab a piece of candy or they'd request a certain type of candy to be placed in there. And so that was a way of opening it up. Another way to make things fun I think pure, quite frankly, I think work is fun and creativity is fun. And if you can make yeah. the workplace creative and you can unleash people's creativity, um, I think they'll find it fun. Um, we think. allow, we, we, uh, my daughter, my youngest daughter works at a, um, a water park. And okay. they, yeah, what they, it was her first job this summer. She's 17. And so after her first night, she came home and she goes, Dad, we get to play volleyball. And I go, what do you mean? She goes, well, after work, they let all the, all the employees play volleyball. And we go and we have tournaments. And I go, you're kidding me. And I thought that was so unique. And so what happens is when she's getting, she, all summer long, queued up to go to work every day, you know, I'll be playing volleyball the night after work, right? And I go, yeah, you know, it, it wasn't, she's going to work all day slaving away in the food service, but she got to play volleyball. Uh, yeah. And I I think that employer kind of hammered it with employee days in the water park and discounts and the playing of the volleyball because that's their, they're using young people and these are teenagers and, and they need to work off that excess exercise and they love sports. and So there are all kinds of things if you're creative, I think you can make your workplace fun. I agree. I think it's really important to have fun. You talk, you talk a lot about um, meditation too, which, you know, uh, for for some people might read this and go, well, that's kind of strange. Um, even though, you know, workplace balance and, and meditation is becoming something um, uh, more commonplace. However, a lot of people feel, and I don't know if you've experienced this, a lot of people, when you mention meditation, they worry that they're not going to do it right. Have you come across well, they, that? Yeah, they worry they're not going to do it right, or all of a sudden they see you sitting in the lotus position with a turban on your head, uh, and, the, and they... <laughs> They misinterpret that, you know, they don't have their own personal flying carpet, so how can they possibly meditate? And I'll tell you, here's what I do, uh, and I and not, a little bit, yeah, tomorrow I'll do because I've got to go into university, but um, on my way to work, when I'm on my way to work, I begin to focus as I'm driving and think about what I'm going to do and plan my day and everything. And then on my way home from work, I review mentally the entire day. What did I do right and what did I do wrong? And when I get to the driveway, that's mm-hmm. it. We're done. I will give work on the way there and on the way back. But, you know, that's not for them. That's for me. Mm-hmm. On the way there, I'm winding myself up, planning what I'm going to do. And on the way back, I am winding down. I have got a set time to review what happened to get some to flush the emotions out as much as I possibly can, and Andrew and I talk about building in tactical and strategic pauses. That's the that's mm-hmm. how we use this, and that's a strategic pause. That's where you're pausing the workday. You're allowing your own thoughts to uh, to collect, um, yeah. and so that is um, one of the most valuable things I think you can do as a stress reliever, but also making yourself a better employee. I, you know, I totally agree, and I think driving is is a perfect example of self meditation and, and self hypnosis, really, because you're doing, you know, something that that you don't need your your conscious mind, you know, or your subconscious mind to really, um, you know, to work on. You you know how to do it. Everybody knows how to drive. Um, you know, you need to be, keep your wits about you as far as other cars, but you you do get to kind of daydream and and go in and and lose yourself in your thoughts a little bit, and that that can be really relaxing. I find well, I, that's where my creativity usually comes when I'm doing that. Some people it's a shower, other people whatever. But when I drive, um, that's usually the best ideas come in. 
All right. Well, let me tell you how powerful that is. This is for me. Um, I I built an office adjacent to my home, and that's where I am now. And so I literally walk about 10 steps in my pajamas in the morning with my coffee and begin my work day. But if I have a particularly stressful day, and you can still have stress working by yourself or working with very small groups of people, um, and I will generally work till about 2 or 2.30 in the morning, it is not uncommon for me to get out, to go out, get in the car, and drive about eight miles one way and drive back like I'm driving home. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's just, that's, otherwise, if I just go straight into the house, there's no unwind time for me sometimes. So I've got, and I will, I'll get in the car and I've got this little circuitous route I'll take about 2.30 in the morning. I'll drive around like I'm driving home. And when I pull into the driveway, all of that, and I agree with you, that it's probably hypnotic very much so. Uh, mm-hmm. I'll feel like, okay, now I can relax. So I think you have to find those things in your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in the book, we talk about one of the, one of the um, key ingredients for a good leader is, is the ability to build loyalty. How does a leader um, build loyalty with, with his, uh, his team, let's say, or... You know, uh, leader um, uh, loyalty is a simple, simple thing, but yet so very hard for most people. Mm -hmm. Um, First off, loyalty starts with the leader. It doesn't start with the followers. Mm -hmm. Loyalty building starts the leader. But it's not being loyal to the followers. It is being loyal to the organizational values and norms. Um, what happens is the employees are watching you, and they're watching how what you do, your indirect, your direct actions, and your words align with the organizational values and goals. If they see that you're in alignment, then mm-hmm. they're going to be in alignment with you and build loyalty towards the organizational values and goals. I'm not interested in building personal loyalty. What we're talking about is loyalty to the task that you're accomplishing. So I think a leader starts by demonstrating that uh, loyalty to organizational values and goals through their direct, indirect, and words, and also by their showing their commitment to the followers uh, and so that they followers then can have loyalty to each other and loyalty to the organization. And if they mm-hmm. have those two things, then they're going to have loyalty to you, the leader. It's just mm-hmm. going to flow naturally. But the most important thing is you're building loyalty to the organization. You work for somebody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that can be kind of difficult sometimes. Um, one of the jobs that I had, my last one was uh, Special Advisor Spirit to Government, where my job was to build that loyalty and, and you know, with 60,000 employees who, who were feeling um, as public servants rather – uh, demeaned by by the communities that they lived in, you know the jokes about public servants to stare at the window and do nothing all day. So uh, within government, they were they were you know kind of feeling bad and and outside in their in their home when they told people they were public servants. The you know at one time being a public servant was was something that was people were very proud of, and now it had become something where they were ridiculed. And and the idea that um, building loyalty to the organization when the organization hadn't in their perception, hadn't done anything for, for them in a long time. And it, and it goes beyond money. You know, they, they'd put them in, in, in positions of, of long strikes. They'd put them in positions where, um, you know, they 
they they just didn't give them anything and and so it's important you know for for me it was important to build recognition programs it was important to do things where they felt like their organization cared for them uh, i started dragon boating you know just things where they did things um with the workplace with people in their workplace networked more with people in the in the workplace because it used to be a long time ago you know we would have picnics we would have parties christmas parties with with our with our organization but now you know times are tight people don't want to spend that kind of money so they don't bring the families anymore they might just do it you know for the employee themselves and and so you don't have that sense of really belonging sometimes in now in the police department it might be different because you know it, it is a there's a hierarchy and and there's a boys it's a club you know atmosphere it, you you belong to to you know this this as we spoke earlier um and i know with my son in the fire department you know you you've got your your guys you know whether they're women or men you got your guys um but it can be different in, in a big organization where you don't have, you know, every, it's every man for himself kind of, you know, attitude instead of this team. So what would you say to that? How would you build loyalty in, in an organization? Well, that certainly would be a tough thing to do. But um, one of the things that, and I've worked with many uh, civilian employees and also employees of regular organizations, and I think the first thing it uh, I think it starts with a recognition when people start to, the, you know, the company hasn't done anything for me lately uh, type of malaise. I, I'm always, I always find that fascinating because every place that I've been hired by, um, mm-hmm. they didn't agree to take care of me. Uh, mm-hmm. They agreed that I was going to do a task and I was going to get paid for it and I was going to get paid well. Uh, and mm-hmm. if I didn't like it, uh, we could separate a company. Uh, and I think people have to be reminded of that, that um, there's nobody's here to take care of you. You're here to participate in this, and you're getting this wage. It, it, when the book we talk about this, we talk about wages being a, a, what we call a dissatisfier. Wages mm-hmm. and benefits, if they're not present, they dissatisfy, but they don't motivate even if they're present. Um, you know, that's not really where loyalty or motivation is built around wage or benefit issues. So what I would do is, number one, remind people why they are present there. I would look for symbols and storytelling and ways to communicate so that people can recall why they joined up in public servants. I also think that you need to continually remind them that it is an honorable thing to serve their fellow human being uh, in the capacity, whether they're a clerk at the DMV or they're a mm-hmm. police officer, they're serving everyone else. They're part of what makes the fact that the streetlights work, and they're part of what makes the highways work. They're part of what makes commerce possible. It's a very tiny part, but they're part of it. And so that's, you know, you, we have to remind people of that. I totally agree, and I think that that's where that communication comes in at the top level and this alignment with your mission and your vision and, and not just expressing what your mission is, but showing people as a leader why their role is so important because people don't always understand where they fit into the organization. They know that they come and they have a job to do, but they don't understand the importance of that job. And like you said, that cog in the wheel that, you know, your streetlights are on because of you, because you're sitting there at that desk making sure that they're on, you know, and you don't always realize that. And so that's the, that's the recognition that a leader can do for their employees is, is to, to um, draw that, 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 you know, diagram, let's say, or, or bring that, that thread around so that they understand how they fit and how they're in alignment with, with the organization's goals and values. I uh, gave a seminar earlier today on morale, uh, mm-hmm. and one of the things that I talked about was taking followers 
follower activities, tasks, reviews, um, anything a follower does. And if the, part, the part of leadership is to draw a connection between what the follower is doing and the wider organizational goals. Mm -hmm. If people understand and believe that what they're doing adds to the organizational goals, then that's why they joined up, then they're contributing, that happens to have a huge impact on your morale if you think you're actually doing something valuable. Exactly. Uh, yeah, so that I is totally a huge, yeah, it's a huge leader activity. And I think you're right too that, that it's not just money that, that you know makes people happy in the job. I think a lot of times it's the ability to be innovative, the ability to create something and also, like you talked about the flexibility, that was one of the things for me that was um, really beneficial at, that I was trusted, like yourself, to, to have that flexible um, ability. You know, you have your, you have your, your BlackBerry, you've got your, your page, you've got your cell phone, you've got all of those things. And so you can work off-site because they know that you're going to do the work. You don't have to do the traveling of, you know, two hours or whatever to get to work. You can work from wherever you are because that's the kind of work you are. And that kind of flexibility goes in alignment with my personal values of that I value flexibility. You know, I, I value freedom. I value, you know, those kinds of things. So I think that's important to think about, too, as a leader. You know, how can you show that to your employees? I, I think it's also important uh, for uh, uh, the follower to demonstrate that. Um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, many years ago, I was a, I just transferred as a sergeant to a division, and uh, they were looking for somebody to be the administrative sergeant. So I stepped in, and about two months later, a new captain came in. And so uh, he had been there like two or three days, and I was taking a telecommute day. I was working at home. And so when I came in the next day, he said, well, you, you weren't here yesterday. And I said, no, I, I was telecommuting. And he goes, well, you know, the organization is not 100% behind this whole concept of telecommuting. And I go, okay, not a problem. My, and my interpretation was, okay, we're not telecommuting anymore. I don't like it. Well, after he'd been working, I'd been working for him about a month and a half, he came into my office and he had a project. And he let the project down and, he, and, he show, and he's telling me about it. And I'm going, this is a nightmare. He goes, yeah, he goes, you're going to need a couple of telecommute days for this. <laughs> he had learned to trust me. He had learned to trust uh -huh. the work that I was doing. He knew I would get the job done. He also knew if I could take this work home and focus on it at home without distraction, I'd get this project done really quickly. So I think that those that flexibility and those perks, I think you as the follower, we have to earn that too. I mean, that's yeah. why I said oh, that yeah. in yeah, the beginning absolutely. of the conversation that, Studying leadership is good for followers because you, you, you've got to be a good follower. Yeah, you've got to be a good follower. One of the other things I think um, you talk about in the book um, is Mary's story, which I really like that story, and, and, and I'd like you to tell it in a minute. But the failure to understand the amount of work that someone has to do. You know, I as a, as a leader, I would never ask anyone to do something I wouldn't do myself, and I think that's important. How do you feel about that? Well, that, that, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I wouldn't ask anybody to do something I would, couldn't, uh, I wouldn't do myself. I, no, I would have to say that 100%. Um, I do think that when you're delegating tasks, there's a whole lot of different things that go into it. Um, but that's one of them. I'm not going to ask you to do something. And, and, and I think that just comes so naturally. I mean, we're not going to ask anybody to do anything illegal, immoral, contrary to what the work policies are. And I, if I wouldn't do it, I wouldn't ask you to do it either. Yeah. Or haven't done it before. You know, I mean, it's like, well, if you've got to clean a toilet to make things better today, well, maybe that's what you've got to do. Maybe it's not in your job description, whatever, but you're not going to ask them to do something that you wouldn't do yourself. 
So I well, think I that, that's kind of important. Yeah, I can't tell you the number of times I've rolled up my sleeves and just done something because it needed to be done. Right. Uh, and and I think that communicates loudly to people. Oh yeah, I think and, and I think it makes people want to follow you more too. Absolutely, I think it makes you know that loyalty. It's not just the loyalty I don't think to the organization, but it is the loyalty to the leader, and and that's by by that leader you know, walking in your shoes, so to speak. So this little story that you told in the book about, you know, Mary's story about, um, do you remember it? About the, the woman who, who um, whose husband was complaining that, you know, she wasn't receptive to him in the evenings because she was tired from all the work that she did. Um, I'm not, I'm not, uh, it's okay. not ringing so, a bell with so me. He read, he, read, he read a story in a magazine that, that if, you know, his wife didn't have to come home and, and clean and do all all you know the laundry and, and feed the kids and bathe them and all that stuff. That she might be more receptive to making love to him in the evening, and and so she came home one night and he had you know made the beds and done the laundry and fed the kids and had a wonderful dinner for her, and and she told her friends she was so excited the next day what her husband had done and she'd asked him why he did it. He said, well, because I read this article, and they said, well, how did it work? How's the rest of the evening going? She goes, well, he was too tired. <laughs> so, I love that. I think that's great. Yeah, now now I do remember the story. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That, that's that's you know understanding you know what the amount of work that someone else has to do when you ask them to do it. So that's, uh, well, I think, I think that's a great example. I think one of the simplest leader activities is compassion and empathy. Uh, and you know, if you're asking somebody to do something very difficult or work long hours, God, you know, hey, thank you. I appreciate that. I know this is tough on you. Um, I appreciate you stepping up to the plate. There's nothing wrong with saying that. And that's what you should say. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. So when, um, you know, this, this whole idea of the art of influencing human behavior, um, what what other influencers or uh, I don't, maybe that's not the quite word, um, but what else can we do as a leader, let's say, that would encourage um, others, you know, how can we influence their behavior, how can we, we um, what other strategies, I guess, I'm trying to say? Well, the reason we chose the word influence is because that was the one, the word we came up with that that seemed to encompass the the largest variety of leader behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll tell you, it's everything from who you hire, going by the how you hire them, uh, to how you fire people, how you discipline them, the things you say, the symbols in your office, um, the clothes that you wear, these all influence people, the indirect mm-hmm. and direct actions. And so, um, you know, every, these are, there's just so everything a leader does is being observed by people all the time. And so everything that you do, therefore, is a leadership activity from the moment you mm-hmm. walk into the moment you walk out. That's why it's a huge responsibility. People are watching you and taking their cues from you. So there are lots of ways that you can you can influence people. But I think the most important thing is, for the leader to figure out what they want first. What are, the, what are you trying to accomplish as a leader? What is the goal? What are the organizational goals? And how does your shop, how can your shop better perform to meet those goals? I think it starts with the leader. Yeah. And what about the idea that, you know, and I know that you're in agreement with this, but let's just throw it out there for those who are listening, the idea that the leader um, takes responsibility even when you delegate. It, you know, you you delegated that to somebody, so so you still need to take responsibility that that job got done, or if it wasn't done properly, that's your responsibility. 
right? It, it, yeah, it turns out that card playing is actually a wonderful metaphor. Leaders often um, um, confuse accountability and responsibility. You cannot delegate responsibility. It just doesn't happen. Um, you may think you do, and you may use somebody else to deflect on if something goes sideways, but if I ask a follower to do a task and it doesn't go well, um, I'm responsible still. I didn't mm -hmm. give up that responsibility. I delegated authority to act and authority to do things. Um, accountability and responsibility are two different things. Accountability, and, and we use this is why poker was such a good metaphor for this. Um, when you go to a poker game or a card game, you know all the rules. And, mm -hmm. it's your, and it's your money, and you're playing cards. And you may have a great hand, and you decide that you're going to raise with this hand. And there's very few that could beat you, but all of a sudden you're in a bad beat situation. And damn it, if the guy across from you doesn't have the only one hand that possibly be better than yours. Now, are okay. you responsible for losing, or are you accountable for losing? Well, it turns out you're probably not responsible, because accountability-wise, well, you did all the right things. But it turns out in life, you can do all of the right things and it still goes sideways. Yeah. Uh, so really what we're talking about with followers is if they're doing all of the right things and they're doing how they've been trained, they're accountable for what they've been trained, the resources they've been given, the direction and the mission statement, and they're accountable to ask questions and they're accountable to do their job. If it goes sideways, responsibility is another issue, and it sometimes doesn't fall back on the leader. Now, if you don't exercise your accountability and, and you don't do the right things, well, yeah, you're responsible for the outcome. But you can do the right things and still have a bad outcome. Right. Uh, but you also – I also like the idea that, that, you know, when you use the analogy of cards, that, that poker's fair. Everybody gets five cards. That, you know, it's not – you know, we all get the same cards. We may not get, you know, the aces, and we may not get the kings and the jacks, but we all have the same, you know, probability of getting, you know, a good hand. It's the way it goes, right? So whatever we, yeah, that happens, was, it's still fair. Yeah, and that, and that I think is a very philosophical point with both of us. We see the 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 only way you can judge fairness is through process and if a process is fair, because outcomes are often unfair. Uh, you know, and, there, and there's so many variables that go into an, uh, an outcome being unfair that it's so hard to, um, you know, to do anything about it or make those things. But if you can make a process fair, and card playing the process is fair, um, everybody, as you said, it has equal distribution of uh, and equal odds for the distribution of good and bad hands. And a bad hand can win depending on how it's played, uh, right. skillfully played. So, um, yeah, you're right. It's fair in the process and that the rules, the outcome may not be fair. I mean, it may not feel fair, but right. the process yeah. is. Yeah. So, we're, boy, we're almost out of time. Surrounding oneself with excellence, you know, chapter, you know, the five of diamonds, um, what does excellence mean? Well, I, you know, that's probably a personal thing, uh, and it may, for each leader it's different. Um, but for me, excellence as a leader, I was always looking for the most creative and imaginative people, um, number one. And number two, I was always looking for those who would just take the ball and run with it. That was excellence to me. And excellence is generally defined by your organization. Uh, and so when I was hiring people 
or I was shifting teams around, really looked to hire excellence, really looked to surround myself with excellence. Uh, when I would meet with my peers and I would be seen uh, going out with other section leaders, I would make it a point to go out with excellence and to choose excellence to be the people that I would be with because I thought that sent a message. And plus, they're just cool to be around. Um, yeah. That's a constant I, activity. I Searching yeah. out. Cool. No, sorry. Sorry, go ahead. Finish. No, I, and you know the last thing I want to say is I'm always looking for people who are different than I am. Uh-huh. I mean that's well, important that's, to me. I think it is important because that's where you know your creativity can 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 bounce off and and you find new things. One of the things I was kind of excited to talk to you about was because um, you know of of your interest in, in love for justice technology. And I had come out of the justice technology division, and and talk about innovation. I we had worked on the you know one of the biggest justice projects in the world, which was the integrated justice system linking seven agencies, you know courts, crown, police, bailiffs, parole, jails, all of it together which was pretty exciting and very innovative. Um, you know, they had, they had missed um, a guy who had been like a mass murderer because the, the police divisions across the, the country weren't linked to one another. And, and now they are, and, and those people are being, you know, picked up left, right, and center. So that, that's kind of interesting, the technology that is happening in justice. Yeah, the, the interoperability issues that we face in this country are huge with the, the different fragmentation. And when I started working on my doctoral, uh, my dissertation, I was actually looking at the uh, distribution of technology and the adoption. And my thesis was, there's a, there, there, my, my thesis was that there is a, uh, there's actually research to support how technology spreads and early adopters and all that. But what I said was that there was an intervening factor in law enforcement and that intervening factor that caused technology not to spread as rapidly or to spread unevenly was culture of the individual organization. Yeah. Uh, and that was a boundary. Um, and boundary spanning activities are very important to me. And so, um, yeah, I just, the whole technology issue, it's something fascinating to me. I love to break my computer. <laughs> well, you know, I, I had, oh gosh, I was in, in charge of um, the Justice Technology Showcases, and I remember bringing um, a Supreme Court justice up from San Francisco, his name escapes me right now, who had a paperless court, and he had it about, um, oh geez, maybe 10 years ago. And he really, really was, was diligent in that there was not going to be any paper. And it's hard not to have paper because, you know, my gosh, like you guys are like, everything is written down and, and you know, on paper. Everything has to go, uh, you know, the stories are all written down in, in your notebooks yeah. everywhere. But, yeah, I don't yeah. know that we'll ever go paperless, but uh, the, just the integration of information and the pushing and pulling of information is the critical aspect. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it's phenomenal that, that you know, that integrated justice system. And I know that there's a couple of them in the U.S. too. Um, that they even exist, and, and if people understood or knew about them, they would. I think they would be really fascinated by it. I think you if know? they, it, yeah, and they, if they knew the places where uh, literally somebody could commit a crime, their fingerprints being the database, but they could cross a county line, and that them being wanted would not be known in that county is kind of frightening. I know. Yeah. So imagine that, that you know, the, the jails, the police know that this guy's been released and the Crown and the bailiffs know and everybody knows. Everybody knows everything, which it's pretty, it's pretty interesting and exciting stuff. It is. So, Raven, what is, what is next for you? I mean, you're a prolific writer. It seems like you really enjoy the writing and, and the publishing and 
um, all of the things that you're into doing now that you're semi-retired? <laughs> Is that what you want to call it? Is that what you call yourself? No, I'm not retired. I just switched careers. Okay, uh, I do, I do, I do have a service pension, but um, I work harder now than I ever did. But the the fun thing is, I, I I work for myself, and if I make a mistake, it you know, they're usually doozies, but nobody gets in trouble but me, so it's kind of nice. Um, what's next for me? Well, Andrew and I've been talking about another book. Uh, I've been cast by CBS to do, or was cast by CBS to do the host of a show. Uh, right. Um, yeah, that's now been put on hold, being shopped to some cable things. So I've got that kind of back burner. You know, we have our own block talk radio show. We've got 70 yep. episodes up there now. So I like doing that. I want to expand that. Um, I am moved into mostly editing and fact-checking for major publishing houses because it pays better and it pays quicker than the regular stuff. So I do a lot of research. So I think okay. I want to go forward with doing the research. I want to expand the radio show. And I would like to get this television thing moving in the right direction. So that's kind of what's in the future for me. Uh, well, that's pretty we, exciting. We may have another. We've been talking about another book, but uh, we're kind of waiting right now. I want this one to play out. Okay. So just because we are out of time, let's just give folks again where they can find your book, um, how they can get your book again. Say it for us. www.pokerleadership.com. Okay. We're out of time. Thank you so much for being my guest. It was wonderful speaking to you this evening. Uh, again, what a wonderful book. And the book, again, is called Leadership, Texas Hold'em Style. Thank you, Raymond. Take care. Have yourself a great evening. Bye-bye. Hey, Houston. For a limited time at VisionWorks, you can get two complete pairs of glasses, frames, lenses, the works, for just $49 on single vision glasses and $89 on progressives. And that's a good deal. But we offer that pricing on over 500 frames, which makes it a great deal. Right now, buy two complete pairs of single vision glasses for just $49 or two pairs of progressives for only $89. VisionWorks, we're here to help you. Some restrictions apply. See store for details. Offer expires November 10th.